Thank you and welcome. I'm Father Mitch Packle. Welcome to Scripture and Tradition, a program where we discuss sacred scripture in light of the apostolic tradition, that is the tradition that comes to us from the apostles and ultimately from Jesus. But we also take a look at scripture in terms of how we can pray and meditate on it and hear our Lord speaking to us in the Word of God. That's going to be key. Now, of course, we'd love to have you participate. You can do like these nice folks have done by coming all the way from Georgia over here to be in our studio audience. And you can certainly come here to be part of our audience. Or if you can't, you can still call in a question or comment during the live program, which is Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. And the number you can call if you are in North America is 1-800-221-9460. 1-800-221-9460. If you are outside North America, you can still call, but it's country code 1, area code 205, 271-2980. You can also send us your questions or comments by email, writing to scripture and tradition at EWTN.com or follow us and participate with the show on YouTube. Today, we're going to follow up from last week where we are going to discuss our Lord Jesus' second prediction of his death. And we'll learn a lot about the opportunity that all of us have, lay people and clergy alike, to learn about the importance, the essential nature of humility. All right, let's take a look here. Now, if you recall, our Lord was transfigured on a mountain, a tradition holds that it's Mount Tabor, uh, which is in Galilee. It's a really beautiful, beautiful chapel if you go up there. And then after he came back down, he continued teaching. Um, by the way, don't forget, we're still going through my book, Wheat and Tares, which is about restoring the moral vision of a scandalized church. Uh, you can still get that at EWTN Religious Catalog, which is EWTNRC.com. And it's item number 81098. So let's now get, get back over here. So let's take a look at Mark chapter 9. Verse, we'll begin with verses 30 to 31. It he said from then on, uh, you know, from the transfiguration, they passed through Galilee. And he would not have anyone know it, for he was teaching his disciples. So that's one part of this. He's just quietly going through Galilee, not get, getting the crowds, because he wanted to talk to his disciples just as the twelve. And he said to them, the Son of Man will be delivered into the hands of men, 
and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. Now, this is the second time he predicted his upcoming suffering and death. And in this, he makes three points. First, the Son of Man will be handed over into the hands of men. Secondly, they will kill him. And thirdly, after he's killed, after three days, he will rise. So this is something that he is letting them know ahead of time. Now, in this, we see that the apostles do not understand this. They don't understand the same we see in verse 32, and they were afraid to ask him. That this is something that's very important. When we don't understand something, fear is a problem. Matter of fact, a Methodist minister friend of mine had a great line. We were having lunch together last week, and he said, for every one point of fear factor that increases in your life, you lose five points in your IQ. Fear makes you dumber and dumber. This is a very great way to put it. I don't know if that's very precise, but it sure gets the point. And that's why you have to be very careful when people tell you to be afraid because one of the things that will happen, whether they plan on this or whether they don't, I can't say that, but you will make yourself dumber. And if they make you afraid enough, they'll help you be dumb. They really will. They'll encourage it because then they can manipulate you all the more. Very basic principle of life and worth keeping in mind. And that's what goes on with the apostles. They're afraid and they won't ask the question. And this is something that, again, pay attention to the way various people use fears. You know, the, the chicken little approach to politics and economics that we see so often. Um, pay attention to that. It might be that they're just trying to dumb you down now, after this misunderstanding and their fear to say anything, what do they do? They change the subject. In verse 33, they came to Capernaum, which is right on the Sea of Galilee. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? So he knew they were talking and talking among themselves. And this is something that I, he's not afraid to ask them for one thing. Notice he asked, he's not going to be scared of what the answer might be. He wants to find out. And in this, uh, they are, respond by being silent. Now, why are they silent? Because on the way, they had discussed with one another who was the greatest. This is where they shift 
from what Jesus had said about his own coming, being betrayed, killed, but then rising from the dead. And afraid to ask about that, they changed the subject to themselves. This is pretty narcissistic. When somebody talks about their upcoming death and you start talking about yourself instead, you're pretty egomaniacal. This is a very odd thing. And to talk about which one of them is the great. And St. Mark is very skillful in not telling us what they said in the arguments. You can, you can put it in there yourself. And, and I've oftentimes imagined that Peter, James, and John, who had been up there with the Lord at the Transfiguration, may well have said, well, I can't talk about it, Jesus said, but you rest of you nine didn't see what we saw, and we just won't say anything. We'll pass over this. But it was so cool. And, yeah, but I have a better education than you do. You know, and all the other arguments that they may have used, you know, that whatever they could have been. And, the, you know, oftentimes when we think about that, it, whatever arguments we might use in those situations, the picture, what they were saying, oftentimes reflect what's going on inside of ourselves. It's a way to, when you try to imagine what their arguments might be, it's probably arguments you may have heard from others, or, or it may be arguments you have within your own mind but they're focused on being themselves greatest. And this is something that our Lord has to address. So he sat down there again, they're in Peter's house and called the 12 together. And he said to them, if any one of you would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Now, this would not fit their notion of being the greatest. That's not the way the great people of their culture acted. It would be typical to have servants, if not actual slaves. That was, slaves were so, were relatively cheap because the Romans went around conquering all these other countries. And, you know, quite frankly, and it's hard to keep, keep up the emotional energy needed to slaughter thousands and thousands of people. So they would oftentimes kill the soldiers that execute them if they captured them. Not always, but a lot of times. And then they would make slaves out of any of the survivors. And they would capture, when they went to a country, 100,000, 200,000 people. So many slaves that one-third of the Roman Empire's population was enslaved. One-third of the people in the empire were slaves and captured, you know, uh, in, in war. So this is 
you know, the way that rich people lived was to have slaves. And Christ said, no, greatness, in my view, is being a servant. And the word servant, doulos, can also mean slave. They don't distinct, it's the same word. And that would not fit their idea of greatness. Owning a lot of other people, that fits it. So this is something that uh, is very important. And he puts this child and warmly embraces him and says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So that Christ is one who takes in these ch children, and accepting a child is to accept Christ, and to, therefore to accept the Father. Now this is something that's a very important principle. You know, this book was something I wrote in, in a, as a way for us to pray through the terrible sex abuse scandal that we've had in the church. It's, it's calmed down. It's, you know, Bill Don, Dr. Bill Donahue has you know, shown that, that all that has changed tremendously in the church. It's gotten worse outside the church. In the public schools, it's gotten worse. And in other areas of society, it's gotten worse. The numbers are, are incredibly high around our, our country. Uh, there's going to be a fine movie about human trafficking that James Caviezel is, going, is putting out, comes out in uh, July 4th. hope you all get a chance to see that. But this is the contrast. Remember the parable of the sheep and the goats? Whatever you do to the least of your brethren, you do to me. Whatever you fail to do to them, you neglect to do to me. And that's how Christ will judge people. Well, so also here, if we accept the child and the dignity of the child and care for them, we're accepting Jesus. But if we do harm to a child or anybody else, then you're doing that to Jesus, and he will count that as being done to himself. This is a very important element here. And another thing, too, is the issue of humility, that the child is chosen because of humility. And what do we mean by humility? This does not refer, the virtue of humility does not mean you put yourself down. You neither try to be number one, fight to be number one and all that, nor do you put yourself down. Why? Because in both cases, you're still focused on yourself. And you're focused on who is above you and who's ahead of you. And it's very important to understand humility primarily comes from looking up to God, that of becoming aware of God's greatness, His majesty, His beauty, and His power. To become more and more aware of God is what can make us humble. Only then we realize how small we are. Not unlike the experience of looking up 
at the Rocky Mountains, especially the Canadian Rockies, our Rockies too, but the, in some ways the Canadian Rockies have, are more stunning. And, or if you go to Pikes Peak and that, you see the flatness of eastern Colorado and then the majesty of the mountains. It's just tremendous. And you realize how small you are. Or when you look into space and you realize how tiny you are. And, it's the, and God makes space look small. That's the reality. And it's as you focus on God, our Lord, that you begin to realize your smallness and humility begins with that recognition. I'm very small and yet God cares for me. This is a tremendous thing. And we look up at him with wonder and love. This is the task. And it's very important for us to have that sense. Just like when we hear beautiful music, you hear, you know, a, a wonderful sympathy, uh, symphony. Um, when, for instance, when I was uh, doing the Christmas special at the prison in Texas, the men who were, these prison inmates, were listening to this classical music being performed by Eric Genuis and his ensembles. And they were on their feet, they were crying. The beauty of it, oh, one, they even said to me, Nobody ever brings us anything beautiful, and you did. Well, Eric did all the beauty part, uh, just arranged for a couple of things. And that beauty of great music or of beautiful art, you see Michelangelo's David or the Pieta or any of the other great pieces of art and painting. It makes you better to realize how superb that art is. Great music makes you feel, you know, uh, become a better person. So much more true is it as you love God and put Him ahead of everything else. And this is how people get perspective. I've been convinced that Atheists cannot be funny because without God in their lives, they don't have any perspective on themselves. And they make themselves more uptight. That's why they're so boring. Not to mention constantly angry. So God gives us perspective. And that's where humility comes in. We're going to take a break. We'll come back in a couple minutes with uh, more on Mark chapter 10 and the rich young man, as well as the questions and comments from our studio audience and you. So please stay with us.
Welcome back. Welcome back. Um, I'd like to take a look at another area where the apostles had real difficulties understanding our Lord. And that is the case of the rich young man from Mark chapter 10, beginning with verses 17 through 31. Okay, so let's take a look at that. First, um, this, as he was setting out on his journey, Jesus was starting to walk back to the south. He was going to go toward Jerusalem. A man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this is itself important because already the man is thinking about life after this life. A lot of people don't. They, some Christians will assume, well, as I get closer to the end of life, then I'll start thinking about these things. But right now I'm too busy. Or some people just don't want to think about that because if you think about the end of your life, you have to think about your values. Why are, why are you here? What are you doing? What happens after you die? And those are very important questions that, again, like staying close to God, such questions put perspective on us. So here's this wealthy man who is asking the question, how do I attain eternal life? Now, our Lord responds, you know the commandments. Do not kill, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud on your father and mother. So he takes the commandments and, and notice how he focuses on the commandments that concern behavior between human beings. He didn't even get to the first three, which are focused on relationship with God. He focuses on the way you treat other people, including your parents. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have observed from my youth. So this is a, a wealthy man who really has taken the commandments of God very seriously. And he obviously takes God seriously. That's why he has, again, enough perspective on himself to be able to say these commandments are something I need to do. So Jesus, in verse 21, Jesus looking upon him loved him. That that response of keeping the commandments evokes love from Christ. And he said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell what you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. At that saying, his countenance fell, and he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now, this is uh, something that is very difficult, that it's, you know, if you have a lot of money, it's not easy to give it up. Um, I know a Franciscan priest who right out of grad school, he was from New York, worked in New York, uh, Wall Street, made a couple million bucks right away. 
he was he's smart and he knew how to work the stock market and and do extremely well had a great apartment in New York and all the other stuff that goes with it <clears throat> but he also like this young man felt emptiness that you know what is the purpose of all this and for him as a guy who didn't grow up wealthy, he, he worked hard to get where he was, got a great education and worked hard to make that money, and he s still saw the hollowness. So he gave it away and became a Franciscan friar. You know, I know of other people like that, men who have joined religious orders and seminaries and women who have joined convents with that similar kind of things. Uh, and it's possible to do. But this guy couldn't. And notice something about him. We don't know his name. We know the names of the 12 apostles. We went through that a few weeks ago. But we don't know this guy's name. As he hung on to his wealth, he went off into oblivion and is forgotten by name. Whereas the apostles, who did give up what they had, now they had some boats, which would have been hard for them. This is all they had. But they gave up their boats and their nets and followed Jesus. And we know them. And this is oftentimes the, the, the case. I said this, and, and this is not to disparage Princess Diane, but... It just was a striking moment. She died just about three or four days, about four days before Mother Teresa of Calcutta died. And, you know, as wonder, and she was a very generous person and helped a lot of folks and all that. As generous and good as Princess Diana was, she'll be forgotten. You know, you, you think... Um, how many of you know the name of the princess daughters of Edward III? <laughs> I mean, I don't. You know, I'm, I know who he is. It, you know, uh, you, you don't. don't. And most of the princesses of England know them well. We don't remember them. Uh, we don't remember the kings and queens. We don't remember our own presidents and their wives, for the most part. Um, but we will have churches dedicated to St. Teresa of Calcutta for centuries and centuries ahead, just like we do with the other saints. That's kind of our Lord's point. So he goes on to say at that point, as he, Jesus looked around and he said directly to his disciples how hard it will be for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at this. The reason being, most of them believed in the book of Deuteronomy that if you obey God's commandments, you'll be wealthy. If you break them, you'll, get, you'll be poor. So they saw that as God's reward. But Jesus said to them again, children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle 
than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Now, there are a couple things. Um, if it is a physical camel and a sewing needle, then it will be impossible. Not hard, that's impossible. But St. Jerome did say that there was a postern gate. So when you had the big city gate of Jerusalem, over, as you're facing the gate, over on the left side, there was a short postern gate, not much higher than this desk. And that, when the big gate was shut and somebody came outside, they could come in through that gate. They didn't want to open up the whole thing so an army wouldn't come in. For a camel to go through that gate, two things would be necessary. One, had to take off all of the stuff he was carrying. Remember, they were caravaneers, and they would bring ca caravans of camels. So you have to would take off everything off his back, and then the camel would have to get on all four knees, get on his knees, and crawl through. That might be the image that our Lord has, that you can't come in with all your stuff. You can't buy heaven. Like the one guy who sold all of his stuff, took the money, bold, bought some pure gold, made a big bullion uh, nugget of gold, and put it in his casket. And when he went to heaven, he tried to buy his way in. And St. Peter said, Lord, there's a guy out at the front gate saying he wants to come in because he has a paving stone. Remember, the streets of heaven are paved with gold. This is just paving stone. This is nothing to God. And we, we can't buy heaven. So that's part of what's going on. So Jesus looked at the disciples when they say, you know, who can be saved? He said, with men it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. He's the one who by his grace makes it possible for us to enter heaven not our efforts by ourselves. And Peter began to say to him, Lo, we have left everything and followed you. So Peter says, no, wait, we've already done a lot to, to follow you. And, um, you know, our Lord has to explain something to them that as he goes on, uh, he says to them um, that you, you know, can, you've given up all this, and yet you will have homes and family even more, a hundred times more than what you gave up. And he brings up to Peter that God will not be outdone in generosity. God will always be far more generous to us than we are to him. Anytime we try to give something of ours to God, it's like a little kid making a picture in first grade and bringing it home and said, Mommy, this is a picture of you. And, you know, and then they put it on the refrigerator door, not because it's a candidate to be in the Louvre and be on exhibit there or some other museum, but it's a precious little gift. And then Mom is much more generous to that child 
than the child could be to the mom. The same is true with God. And this is going to be uh, an important part where we have to cherish poverty. And any clergy who try to get into the religious life or the clergy state in order to make money is going to be greatly disappointed. This will not be the way that you, to, to wealth and riches and fame. It is going to be a way, if you do, you lead yourself to hell. But if you are willing to give up what you have for the sake of Christ and his kingdom, he'll give you heaven and far more than that. Okay. Well, let's take a look at some of the questions that we have. Here we have, start off with our studio audience. Young man, where are you from? I am from Savannah, Georgia. Good to have you here. And you're with a group of folks. Is this a class or a parish group? It is a church group. We're going on a, we've okay, been on a pilgrimage here. Well, welcome. Welcome to Sweet Home, Alabama, our next door neighbor. Um, what can we uh, do for you today? Um, I was going to ask what the context of the book of Romans was. Sure, sure. Paul had been on his third journey, third missionary journey, it's called. And he had gone not only to Asia Minor, but he first crossed into Europe. He went over to uh, the Macedonians, which is now northern Greece, and Philippi, Thessaloniki. Then he went down to Athens and Corinth, and then came back to Asia Minor in Ephesus. So he made that trip, and he decided that he was going to go to Jerusalem to spend the Feast of uh, Pentecost, in Jerusalem, and then he'd go back on another journey farther into Europe. He wanted to go to Rome. So he wrote the letter to the Romans as he finished up. So this would be the year 58 AD. He finished up his that mission, his third mission, and sent that letter perhaps from Philippi, uh, and sent it over to Rome as a way to introduce himself. And he gave a fairly thorough summary of the kinds of things he had been teaching and what was on his mind, and he hoped to bring that to the capital of the empire. So that was the context. And he went on to Jerusalem. However, he was arrested in Jerusalem and kept under arrest uh, for the next oh, year and a half, well, but more than a year and a half, almost two years, and then sailed to Rome for a trial. So he ended up seeing that community later on. But he first of all had to spend a couple of years in prison so, uh, before he could actually see them. But that's the context. And it's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful epistle. A lot of time needs to be spent on that. I have another question from our studio audience. Ma'am, where are you from? Steubenville, Ohio. Nice to have you. Welcome. Thank you. Welcome. What can we do for you? I was wondering if you could explain to me what the transfiguration is all about. Sure. There are a couple of things to keep in mind. Remember, our Lord, just a few verses beforehand, had given the first prediction of his coming death and resurrection. And so 
then he's led to go up the mountain to pray, and there he's transfigured. And there are a couple things going on. One, his body is transfigured. It shines like lightning, according to Luke had, was given that picture. And then all of a sudden it's like clothes that brighter than if you put, you know, bleached them out. So that's one of the things going on. And that's a witness, a little foretaste of the resurrection. Secondly, he gets witnesses from the Old Testament, Moses, who represents the law as testifying to Jesus, and Elijah, who represents the prophets that testified to Jesus. And it's interesting that both of them had gone up to Mount Sinai and both of them had met God up on Sinai. So that adds to the power of their testimony that they had seen God on top of Mount Sinai. Now when he's transfigured, they're testifying to him and they're speaking to him about his coming exodus, that is his suffering and death. But also you see that the apostles are witnesses. They won't be able to say anything about it till after everything has happened. But they will be witnesses that before the resurrection, we saw this hint and we saw Moses and Elijah testifying to Jesus. And later on, when they are on another mountain, Mount Zion, they will also testify to Jesus themselves. And having three witnesses there will be part of that. So that's something that is meant to call witnesses to point to Jesus coming, suffering, and death, and witnesses from Old and New Testament. So that's going to be an important uh, element of that. All right, let's take a break. We'll come back in just a couple minutes, so please stay with us. back to your questions and comments. Just want to invite you to join me tomorrow night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time for, for EWTN Live. We'll be speaking with Marcus Peter, who is president of the St. Peter Institute for Scripture and Evangelization. He's going to talk about covenant theology. The Bible is full of covenants. There are lots of them. And we want to understand the implications of covenants in the Bible and how that affects our relationship with the God who shows us the love that comes from the covenant. So I'm going to start off with an email. 
Let me start off with one from John. Uh, he's, he writes, I'm reading a book called The Unseen Realm by Dr. Michael Heiser. In it, he claims that the Hebrew word Elohim is first singular, referring to God, and then plural, God, uh, 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 gods, and that this is evidence that God is just one of the many gods. However, we know that there is only one God, but Psalm 82 verse 1 says, God has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of the gods. He holds judgment. What does the psalmist mean here and how can we resolve it? Well, first of all, a couple things about understanding how the word Elohim is used. Um, there is a, a singular form of it known, uh, and you see it in the Bible frequently, Eloah, Eloah. And Elohim is, uh, looks like a normal plural form. However, it is used as a singular noun, even though it has a plural form. And in some cases, it is plural. So let's take a look at that. Why, how can you tell which is which? In Hebrew, the verbs have number. So you can tell a singular verb from a plural verb. Secondly, all the adjectives display number and gender. In fact, even the verbs display gender as well as number. So, uh, and so the adjectives. So if the verb and the adjectives and sometimes even the pronouns are plural, then the noun is plural. If the verb, the adjective, and the uh, uh, pronouns are singular, then they mean it to be singular. I'll give an example. In Exodus 32, right around verses 4 or 5, I forget which verse, but it's when the people take off their earrings and give it to Aaron and said, make for us a, a calf, a golden calf. And he says, and these are your gods. Wa'ela ha'elohim. The ela is, is uh, the, the pronoun, is plural. And even the verb who brought you up from Egypt is plural. So then it's a plural word, and it's referring to this being a false god. Now, it also says in the um, Psalm 82, as you mentioned, a couple other places too, that God is in the midst of the council of gods. And this, there's something that they had a sense and it's still vague. You, you know, one of the very important things about understanding the Old Testament is that they developed their thought as time went on. In many ways, um, you, you see that uh, it, the, some of the fathers of the church were absolutely correct in understanding the development of Israel's thought. And we should have a sense of that. They, like anybody else, 
has what they learn from the people around them. That's how we learn everything. We learn from the folks around us. And we take those assumptions, but then as we learn more, we begin to question and make better sense out of them. That's the way science works. It's also the way theology works. There is a development of theology. So, as ancient Israelites who grew up in, for 400 years they lived in Egypt where there are lots of gods. There is the God of the Nile, an evil God who's a hippopotamus, another evil God shaped like a, a crocodile, and the sun God, Ra, and so on, you know, all the different deities. And the same was true for the other places. And the Israelites had a sense there's something real about these deities, and yet they're not the real God. And they had to struggle with that. As time went on, you see, especially in the book of Daniel, and in Psalm, I think it's 97 or 98, where they speak of the, play, for instance, in the psalm, they say, instead of uh, God, Elohim, is king, they, they say he is king among the Elilim. Now, they make a pun. Instead of saying that he is the king of the gods, which would be Elohim, he said he's the king of the Elilim, which is the nothingnesses so that they call these other deities nothingness, and he is king of everything. And then as time develops, they also begin to see that these gods have a demonic quality to them, and they begin to identify them as demons. And in the early church, you see that they also look to the gods as demonic because the people who worshiped those gods were trying to eradicate the church. They were trying to destroy Christ and his followers and were torturing them. So they understood that demons were working there and they, they thought of them as gods. And believe me, the more you look at the ancient gods, the more you can see, well, it makes sense to think of them as demonic. Uh, so that development is going on, and it took a while to develop the vocabulary and the categories um, of who and what these are. So there's one God, to be sure, but there are these other spiritual entities that were identified as gods, and then eventually they come to be seen as demons. So that's what's going on. We have another question from our studio audience. Young lady, where are you from? I'm from Savannah, Georgia. So you're with the same group of folks? Yes, sir. Good to have you with us. What can we do for you today? I was just wondering, according to the um, Immaculate Conception, it led to the questions if the Blessed Mother actually died and then she was assumed, mm -hmm. or if she was alive mm -hmm. when she was assumed. Right. First of all, the church has never defined, you know, once and for all, that she went immediately from being alive right up to heaven or whether she died and then was raised up from the dead.
Okay, never defined that. And the reason is, in the earliest church, there are a number of books that describe what they, one of them is called the Passing of the Virgin Mary. And all of them come from the eastern part of the church. And all of them portray that Our Lady died and then was raised from the dead and assumed into heaven. And in that, they, are, they recognize that she is following the same pattern as Jesus our Lord, that he died, was buried, and then rose and ascended. She died, was buried, was raised up, and then was assumed into heaven. He ascended because he went by his divine power. She was assumed because she needed God's power. And so, but the church hasn't said that for sure, and they don't make any of those books part of Scripture, but they're a very solid part of the tradition. So that's, that's what we have. Um, there's nothing, there are no ancient mentions of uh, her not dying, but a number of people hold that. And it would be a legitimate position, but it's not defined in the church. So you're free to go uh, uh, anything either way. But certainly if she did die, she was then raised from the dead. And in those early books, that's what they describe, that she was raised from the dead and then was assumed into heaven, okay? But went to heaven right away, okay? All right, then we have another email here. This one is from Michael. Dear Father Mitch, I'm confused about what happens when we die. If I am saved, will I go to heaven to be with God immediately, as the thief on the cross was promised by Jesus? Then what is the final judgment at the end of time when Jesus judges the living and the dead? If I'm in heaven all this time, am I not already judged to be in heaven before this final day of judgment? Michael, well, not only would you be, uh, that be true if you're in heaven already, but also if you're in hell already. So when we die, each of us is judged, and the redeemed are taken to heaven, and those condemned go to hell. And even among the redeemed, if there's that need for purification, go to purgatory. But that's only for the redeemed. Now, why would there be a judgment at the end of time? Very important question. And the issue is this. The good that you did was good and you're judged for that. But the good deeds that you did have continuing effects throughout history. So uh, St. Benedict founded the Order of Benedictines 1,500 years ago. And there still are more Benedictines and more Benedictine saints. So the effect of his good continues on through history. The good that Mother Teresa did was not just in her life, it continues as her order continues to grow and do good things. And you won't know the whole story. You don't know the end of the story until the whole story ends at the end of the world. So you'll see the good effects of your life going on for whatever time it takes before the end of time. Whereas for the wicked, the, the evil deeds of Hitler and Stalin and Mao Zedong, that 
will also continue. People are missing. Think of all the people that Hitler killed and Mao Zedong and Stalin were even worse. So all those people are dead and what they would have done, and they could have done, it changed history for the worse. And the effects of that are only known at the end of time. That's why there's a final judgment, to realize the full effects. But we also have an end to this show, and we're coming up to it. So may the Lord bless you all and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you and lead you in all of your ways by his peace. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And as you know, we can bring you this program and all of our other programs only because the network is brought to you by you. This is how Mother Angelica was inspired to start this network, that it was brought not with advertising, but with your support. So we ask you to please keep us in between your gas bill, your electric bill, and your cable bill. And if you do that, we'll be able to pay all of our bills too. God bless you all, and thank you very much for your support.